You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Whether we're looking for the latest political poll numbers, the developments of international conflicts, or celebrity gossip, we turn to the media to present the news of the day. This week, we're listening to conversations with two luminaries of news journalism. Both are alumni of Indiana University. In the second half of the show, we'll hear from Myrna Oliver. During Oliver's four-decade career at major newspapers, she covered beats from criminal courts to celebrity obituaries. She carved out a niche for herself at a time when few women were working in newspaper journalism. But first, we'll hear a conversation with former vice president of NBC in charge of breaking news coverage, Joe Angotti. WFIU's Will Murphy spoke with Joe Angotti earlier this year. Hello, I'm Will Murphy, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Joe Angotti, a proud IU alum who, in fact, is in Bloomington uh, to be recognized as one of the distinguished alumni from the journalism school here at IU, where he got his degree in the 1960s. Uh, Joe started off, though, in Gary, Indiana, and... uh, started off as, as I understand it, the apprentice uh, to his father who ran Arts Quality Bakery, uh, delivering and filling uh, donuts, which to me <laughs> sounds like a, a good way to start off life. And we'll, we'll come to that before we go uh, too far in the interview. Uh, Mr. Angotti was the first student news director of WFIU and earned the first graduate degree in radio and television here at Indiana University. He began his professional career at CBS affiliate WHAS in Louisville, moving in the early 1960s to an NBC station in Chicago, where he served as field producer and weekend reporter. While there, he covered the Democratic National Convention in 1968, got his first taste of tear gas. He moved to the NBC network in the 1970s, becoming executive producer at different times for both weekend and nightly news programming, working with, among others, Tom Brokaw and John Chancellor. As an NBC executive, he covered the Camp David peace accords, the Watergate hearings, launches of the early space satellites, more than a dozen presidential summits, and the fall of the Berlin Wall, and among many other awards, has received an Emmy for his reports on world hunger. From 1993 to 1998, Joan Gotti was professor and communication studies chair at the University of Miami School of Communication and served as the founding director of the Center for the Advancement of Modern Media. He was named professor and chair of the broadcast program at the Medill School of Journalism in 1999, where he remained for about six years, and where he was founder and faculty advisor of the Northwestern News Network. Since 2005, Joanne Gotti has served as a visiting distinguished professor in the Department of Communication at Monmouth College, in Illinois. And uh, it's worth noting that in 2006, Mr. Angotti was among a very distinguished class inducted into the Indiana Journalism Hall of Fame. Joe, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Let's start off. I, I referenced your starting off in Gary, and I'm not being ironic when I say it sounds like a nice way to spend life filling and delivering donuts. <laughs> it was it was fun. Uh, it wasn't so uh, good for the waistline because I had a tendency, as we all did, to uh, to taste our product. But it was an interesting experience, and my, my dad kind of always wanted me to, uh, to 
to go into the bakery business. Uh, he, he had several break bakeries in Gary. And uh, when I came to Indiana University, I, I considered the idea of majoring in business and going back and taking over the bakery shop. Glad I didn't uh, because I think it worked out better for me by not doing that. <laughs> What was the impulse to, or the inclination? What was what was it that switched you in the direction of journalism? Well, when I arrived here uh, as a freshman, uh, I declared a major in speech therapy. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why I, I selected that <laughs> as my major, but it seemed like a an interesting profession. And in the very first speech therapy class I took here at Indiana, I learned that stuttering was the result of an anticipatory hypertonic avoidance reaction. And having learned that, I decided there's really not much else I need to know about speech therapy. <laughs> so I kind of drifted around for a couple of years here. Uh, actually went home one semester, came back, and uh, it wasn't until I took a course in, uh, in radio and television news writing that it uh, kind of struck home that that's really what I wanted to do. As we talked about, you went to uh, Louisville and uh, then Chicago. But before you start your professional career, uh, I'm always intrigued when I hear about folks who come from IU about the time you did, when they talk about the influence of people like Dick Yoakum. It's amazing the effect that he in particular and the faculty around him at that time uh, had on the broadcasting industry, it seems to me. Could you talk a little bit about the effect of uh, yeah, Dick Yoakum? I could talk forever about Dick Hilcom. Um He was my mentor. He, I'm, I'm glad to hear that he's still a legend around here because he deserves to be a legend. When I first took this course, radio and television news writing, he, 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 was, he was the professor of the course. And the course required a couple of things. You had to write a couple of newscasts for WFIU radio uh, as part of the class. And at the time, WFIU was located in a Quonset hut back behind the SAE building. It was left over from World War II. It was uh, probably the most unglamorous building on campus at the time. But for me, it was the most exciting place I'd ever been to and, and, and worked in. And it's where I started in the newsroom at WFIU. And Dick Yoakum had us, uh, in addition to writing the newscasts, he required us to go out and, and cover a story, either in Bloomington or on campus once a week, that required us to do interviews with our little reel-to-reel tape recorder and bring them back and edit the stories and put them on the air. And I thought at the time, I really couldn't believe that people made a living doing that because it was so much fun. And it was fun because of Dick Yoakum. I'm intrigued when you talk to students today, do they even have a glimmering of names like Murrow and Huntley Brinkley and John Sansler and Howard K. Smith and Eric Severide? No. Or are those just mythological <laughs> no, figures? They don't, and, that's, and it's kind of sad, but I, I guess it's understandable. And that's one of the things I try to do. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time talking about Edward R. Murrow and, and what he did for, for the news business and his, his place in history and, and his, his work uh, in London and during the war. But they don't, they don't know much about them. And sadly, but understandably, I think, they're not interested in knowing that much about them. They're more interested in knowing about the people who are in television today, people who are in radio today, and and what they're like, how they got there. I mean, that's that's foremost on their minds, and how they're shaping today's world, not not how the the legends that we knew uh, shaped shaped our world. So, 
So that's kind of a tricky path that you have to take in the classroom. No doubt. I have to say when I see students every now and again, especially TV students, and I don't mean to cast aspersions, but speaking broadly, I often find that students who go into TV have a great fascination with seeing themselves on TV. That's why they want to do it. They want to be known. They want to be seen. The news is just the vehicle for getting there. Was there that mentality when you were going through uh, the program that you want to be the next chancellor, or was there a different drive? There was not as much of that mentality as there is today. And, and when, I, when I came up the ranks at NBC, uh, you know, you, you, you didn't become an anchor man until you had served time as a correspondent in Washington, covering Congress, covering the White House, or overseas, based in the far in Middle East or Far East, and that was the way you worked your way up to being an anchor man. So, so they were people who were more interested in in the stories than they were in themselves. And unfortunately, today there are too many reporters. Uh, there are too many students who just want to be stars. And uh, that's one of the things I try to explain to them, that, that y- y- you can be a better star if you become a journalist first and if you learn the news business first. But that shouldn't be your final goal. I mean, I, I, I impress upon students that when they go out for a job interview, don't ever say that you want to be an anchor man. <laughs> say you want to be a news reporter. That'll, that'll impress people a lot more than saying, I want to be an anchor. I'd like to be an anchor at your station. But there are too many young people today who just, that's where they want to start. That's what they want to do, and, and it's unfortunate. Now, as you start your career in the 1960s, and I'm thinking more about uh, your work in Chicago, although if there are times in Louisville that you want to talk about, the thing one obviously points to is the 68 uh, Democratic Convention. Um, I would think that that is a real trial by fire for somebody who's relatively young in their reporting career. Uh, it was, and it was uh, it was a terrifying time. I was, at the time in Chicago, I was the network news editor, the Midwest editor. I, I was not a reporter. I was not a field producer. But, of course, I, I went out at the end of the day when I'd leave the desk, which was always, I mean, the, the switchboard would always be lit up with people calling in. Uh, with comments about what was going on downtown Chicago, about the hippies and what the police were doing. And and uh, and if you guys keep putting those hippies on the air, we'll never watch you again. I mean, hundreds of phone calls uh, during the day. But then I'd go out into the street at night, and uh, and it, it was just scary stuff. I mean, the, the tear gas, uh, you hear a lot about tear gas, but boy, it it takes its toll on you, on your eyes and on your nose, and, and, it, and it lasts for a long time. And then to see police beating these kids, and they were, no question, they were provoked by the hippies. Uh, they, you know, they used to urinate in balloons and throw the balloons at police, and police would respond. So, so it was a difficult thing. But the, the hardest thing for me to reconcile was the fact that we were disliked, we the press, all the news media. We were disliked by both sides. The police thought we were giving too much attention to the hippies, uh, and that, that we were anti-establishment. The hippies thought that we were establishment because we were broadcasters, large corporate concerns. And so neither neither side liked us. 
and neither side wanted us around for totally different reasons. That was kind of hard uh, for, for all of us because we were caught in the middle and, and we didn't deserve to be. Well, what's the impetus uh, for making the transition from radio to TV? I just was caught up in the idea of being, of using video to take people to places they would never have the opportunity to go and to take them to places where, where there was news, where things were happening. So I, it, was, it was an easy transition for me to go into television. And, and uh, I love radio, but I, I never really had any desire to go back to radio after the first couple of years. Shouldn't say that on radio. <laughs> well, it's a whole field of uh, inquiry that we can talk about in a little bit. Uh, the different ways you tell a story for one versus the other, versus print, for example, or online. So at what point do you move from doing a local kind of thing to uh, in Louisville to pivoting to Chicago where you're both local and sort of a national stage and then move to the network? What's the transition there? How did that happen? Uh, I have to go back to Dick Yoakum again because I, well, I was working at WHAS. Uh, first of all, I started working there, got drafted into the Army, went back to WHAS. But at one point while I was at HAS, Dick Yoakum said, I think there might be an opening in Chicago for a, a summer replacement. Uh, there's no guarantee that it's the full job, uh, full-time job. Uh, you'd have to move there without any kind of guarantee. And at the time, I, had, I was married and I had two kids. So it was a it was a huge gamble, but fortunately, my wife said, "Let's do it," and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and and I got the job uh, after after working there a summer. I became a permanent permanent employee of Chicago in Chicago, and then the progression was to work from the local desk uh, to becoming a network field producer in the Midwest, where at the time we we covered all of the Midwest, a lot of time on the road, a lot of time traveling. And and basically, the people on on what was then the Huntley Brinkley Port report liked my field reporting, liked some of the stories that I was doing with co- different correspondents who would come through the Midwest. And uh, then the opportunity came up to to, to to go to New York to be associate producer of of the nightly news. Now, you move to this this uh, area of news. You get into production. Uh, and senior producing, you start working with the uh, national newscasts, and as we mentioned in the introduction, you really are having a ringside seat for some seminal events in American history, specifically American uh, political history. You've done, what, some dozen or more uh, presidential summits, and Mm -hmm. uh, I assume you had more than your fair share of conventions and uh, debates and that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. Was that an intentional thing on your part to get into the political side of things? It's something I, I uh, it's something I wanted to do. I've always loved politics. I still love politics. Uh, I don't particularly care what's happening to politics today, but but at the time it was it was very exciting, and it was, uh, and I was I was glad to be allowed into that arena. Conventions were were just great fun. I mean. We probably covered them too extensively, and there shouldn't have been wall-to-wall coverage like there was back in those days. Reminder to our listeners, uh, this is Profiles on WFIU. I'm Will Murphy, and we're speaking today with uh, Joe Angotti. Very fortunate to have him in the studio with us as he uh, and his wife are in Bloomington. Uh, He's being recognized as a distinguished alumnus by the media school here 
at uh, IU. Now, in reading about your career, um, as I've mentioned, it's it's really stunning the folks that you've worked with, both uh, in front of and behind the camera. And I think of, of folks like Tom Brokaw and John Chancellor, um, who were the folks I grew up uh, watching on TV. And I'm curious how the anchors in these situations affect the kind of news product or the kind of production that you have versus the role of the person in your chair, the executive producer. Could you speak a little bit about that dance, how the person in the chair in front of the camera defines the kind of broadcast you do and the relationship you have between the producer and the, and the anchor? Sure. The um, Probably the most interesting experience that I had with working with anchors was, was when I was uh, the executive producer of Nightly News and John Chancellor and David Brinkley were the two anchors. David was in Washington. John Chancellor was in New York. Uh, they were both giants at the time. They were very well known. And they were both um, about as opposite as two people could be with their political backgrounds. Chancellor was uh, very liberal, although you never knew it on the air. And David was was very conservative, although you never knew it on the air. In fact, David used to get so upset because he'd get letters from people saying, you're a left-wing liberal. <laughs> and he used to scream and say, I'm not a liberal. I'm... But it was interesting because they both would express to me privately back in my office their preferences for the news that night. They wouldn't do it in front of the rest of the staff. They'd just express it privately. And they understood, and it, every discussion ended would, the final decision is yours, whatever you want to do. And sometimes I'd, I'd take advice from Chancellor. Sometimes I'd take advice from Brinkley. Uh, but once I made the decision, there was never, there was never any question by either one of them about what to have in the newscast. Uh, Joe, you have spent the last what, since 1993 or, or thereabouts, uh, in the classroom uh, at, at various uh, universities, and you've, you've done your own production company as well. Uh, what was it that made you uh, make the migration from the newsroom to the classroom? I think uh, that every professional journalist at one time or another thinks about stepping aside and teaching or going to a small town and starting a local newspaper. I mean, it seems to be that everybody has that same kind of a dream, and, and not many people get there uh, because they stay, I think, uh, too long. So I, I just felt that I wanted, to, I wanted to try the teaching profession. I just felt that I, could, I had something to offer that a lot of people didn't have, and, uh, and I didn't know whether I'd like it or not, and I thought if I don't like it, I can go back. And I've never, I've never regretted making that decision to teach. One reason I, I don't regret it is, is I'm teaching now at this small liberal arts college in Monmouth, Illinois, and for the first time I'm working with students on newspaper work because my, my background had been primarily broadcasting. I find newspaper fascinating. I mean, I just, because I had not done it before, and talking to them about layout and things that should be in the news and shouldn't be in the news has just been fascinating. But, but going back to your original question, one of the unfortunate things about teaching today is that students don't really care about the news. And I'm not talking just about Monmouth, Illinois students. I'm talking about the Medill School of Journalism students, students who want to be professionals, 
who don't really follow the news the same way I used to follow the news when I was in school. I mean, I, I, would, I would watch the Huntley Brinkley show every single night when it came on. And I would get a copy of the New York Times at least a couple times a week to read it. That doesn't seem to be happening anymore. People who think they want to be in the news business, but they don't really follow the news. But we have Twitter, and we have well, Facebook, and we you, have... You're absolutely right, and that's, that's the unfortunate thing. They think they're getting news from all these other sources. I mean, they think when they go on uh, Internet Explorer and they see pictures of, of news and headlines, they think that that's real news. Uh, and they think that thing, things that they see from their Facebook partners are, 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 are real news or things. And it's not. And that's, that's the most difficult part of teaching today is to convince them that there are legitimate news sources that they should be going to and using. And there are other news sources that really uh, are, are putting out a lot of fabrication, a lot of information that's biased, a lot of information that they shouldn't be paying any attention to. And I'm not sure that most students get that yet. I don't think it's seeping into their brains that there are there are lots of different kinds of news sources, and they've got to be very careful. I mean, the, the information highway has really become the misinformation highway. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff that that is not not attributed to anyone, that is that is laying out there to be picked up, that is not factually reported. It's unfortunate. And I, and that's if you ask me what the the most difficult thing about teaching journalism today, it's teaching students that there are these different sources of news and they have to be very careful about which they choose to follow if they choose at all. Now, you started in, in uh, 1993, if I recall, uh, in the classroom, uh, a time before the Internet really takes over. Um, and it seems uh, uh, a very noble uh, ambition to start teaching and continue teaching newspapers as, that, uh, as the web is seemingly engulfing uh, the newsprint biz. How do you approach uh, that situation? How do you teach for newspaper at a time when the newspaper industry is really in crisis? Well, it's uh, one of the things that um, that I've noticed in, in teaching, uh, if I can just bring up the Internet just one, one more time, I don't think there's that much difference in reporting or writing for the Internet or for newspapers or for radio and television, for that matter. I mean, there are all kinds of courses now. Internet news writing, internet. Th when I try to attempt to tell students, this is the way you write for the internet. This is the, you know, there really isn't a different way to write for. There, there's, if you're a good writer, good writing can apply to any medium. I mean, maybe there's a little difference. You know, when 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 you write for radio or television, it's better to attribute at the beginning of a sentence rather than at the end of a sentence because people, when they talk, they don't tribute at the end of a sentence. So we try to get people to write as they talk. But the difference between newspapers and internet writing is, is really not that different. And I don't, I don't understand why there are different courses for te teaching internet news and, and newspapers or radio television news, because it all requires good writing, and it requires basic principles of, of what should or not should not be in a, in a sentence. It, it should all be shorter, sharper, stronger sentences, regardless of the medium. 
that's what I teach anyway. As I think about multimedia uh, writing, uh, and again, playing devil's advocate, I'd say, don't you write differently if you are embedding links, if you're directing people to other sources within the context of, uh, say, a column or a, an article that you're composing for the web? Like, give me an example. Uh, I don't know. You, you, you cite a particular source, and you have the link there, and it embeds, and the person can click and, boom, go to that secondary source. Oh. And they can sort of, uh, uh, if it's convoluted enough, go down a real rabbit hole. Um, as I say, I'm kind of making a devil's uh, argument because yeah. partly what you're talking about is not just the news value uh, but the writing value. It's knowing that you can sit in front of a piece of copy and, like uh, David Brinkley did, take out the excess words at right. the end of a story that's edited. Well, going down a rabbit hole is a good expression because that's I see that happening a lot with students. I mean, they do. They they click onto this and then that takes them to another source and then it takes them to another source. And, and, but it all goes back to understanding the source and, and, and who, who's saying what's being said. You know, I, I use the example a lot of the Washington Times website shortly after Barack Obama was elected president. And they did a story uh, on the website that Barack Obama had attended uh, uh, a Muslim school uh, and had gone there for a couple of years and practiced Muslim religion. That story, that single story, was rejected by the Washington Times newspaper when they saw it. But it was picked up by a whole lot of other people, including Fox News and all of them. Their attribution was the Washington Times website reports that. And then the next person said, this source reports that. But the first report was fictitious. It was, it was made up. And I read recently where 10% of the American people still think that Barack Obama is a Muslim and went to that school. You can trace that all the way back to that one story in the Washington Times website that no one ever corrected, no one ever checked, but that one news organization after another after another uh, picked up and reported. Right. It got double-sourced on the Internet. It must be correct. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. I want to ask uh, one last question about this same topic, and that's about uh, the role of reporters as pundits. Uh, and this is something that intrigues me as a guy who's worked uh, in conjunction with NPR for a long time. Uh, Juan Williams, Cokie Roberts, a lot of those folks uh, serve as pundits, and it's kind of a, a common thing to do these days in, in uh, broadcast uh, reporting. Uh, do you have any problem with that? Yes, but I don't have a solution because the, <laughs> because the problem stems from, uh, from money. I mean, I mean, Juan Williams, when he went to Fox... Uh, made a whole lot more money than he than he was making in national public radio. I mean, it just a whole lot. I can't give you any figures, but I've heard four and five times as much as a salary that that uh, that he was making. And that's what happens. You know, if you, if you go on a if you're a guest on the Fox, uh, you know, the little round thing thing they do at the end of the newscast, you get a thousand bucks for being on the show one time as a talent fee, $1,000 to be a guest on that show, to be a pundit on that show, because they're really not guests. They're, they're, they're people who, who, who talk about the news. And that's a very attractive thing to people. I mean, it would be attractive to me to make 1000 bucks <laughs> to go in and sit down at, 
that table. And, Have I mentioned you're not getting a fee for this appearance? No, you didn't mention okay. that. <laughs> okay, just want to make sure we're clear. Okay. <laughs> but that's, uh, unfortunately, I think that's the source of a lot of this, that people make can make more money being pundits uh, than they can being journeymen journalists. And, and that's another unfortunate thing, but it's it's happening. I want to close today as we as we wrap up this interview, first of all, by saying thank you for your time. But as you're going back to the classroom, as you're being recognized for your contributions to journalism, again, thinking about Dick Yoakum, what do you hope that students take away from you in your classroom in the same way that 50 years later you take something away from Dick Yoakum? I hope they leave my classroom understanding that there are a lot of things that are being done in journalism today, both in print and radio, television, online, that are not good for the American public. And that if if they have one responsibility as being a journalist, it's to give them information that they know is correct, and factual, and not fabricated. And differentiating between what what is correct and what is news that is responsible and news that isn't is one of the things that I hope they take away from my course thinking the next time they see an important news story or follow a story that they think about now. What's the source of that story? What's the organization that was putting that story out? Is that a responsible organization? Do they attribute information to responsible, credible, credible people? And that they ask questions about the news especially about the news that they report and write. We'll leave it there. We've been speaking today with Joe Angotti, who's been visiting IU, uh, being recognized as uh, one of several distinguished alumni from the IU School of Journalism, now the, the Media School. Mr. Angotti, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm Will Murphy. Thank you for listening to Profiles. That was WFIU's Will Murphy speaking with former NBC Vice President Joe Ingotti. This is Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. This week, we're listening to conversations with two prominent figures in the world of news journalism. Next, we'll hear a conversation with Myrna Oliver. WFIU's John Bailey spoke with Oliver earlier this year. Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm John Bailey. On Profiles, we talk with notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Myrna Oliver, who in a four-decade career at major metropolitan newspapers covered beats from general assignment to civil and criminal court cases to celebrity obituaries, carving a niche for herself at a time when few women were making marks in newspaper journalism, and later when the industry itself began shrinking its newsroom staffs. She's a Bloomington native, an Indiana University alumna, 
and one of six honored in 2015 with IU's Distinguished Alumni Award in Journalism. Myrna Oliver, thank you for being here today. It's a pleasure to be here, John. It's fun to be back in Bloomington and Monroe County. I was going to ask. You were born in Bloomington and raised in Ellettsville. Well, not quite either city. I'm a country girl. I was born on Rural Route 6, which is uh, Kirby Road near the airport in an 1847 farmhouse, and I was born there. I think the house is still standing but not occupied. And then at age five, we moved to Roll Route 1, Ellettsville, and I went through the Ellettsville schools. But I'm sure you were in town quite a bit growing oh, yes. up in Bloomington. Yes, everyone gravitates to Bloomington. This how, is home. How does the Bloomington that you see around you now compare with the Bloomington of your youth? Uh, amazing changes. Fortunately, I was here a year ago, so I'm not totally, totally uh, surprised. But what I knew as the town uh, county seat, buildings that were commercial or the post office or whatever are now apartments for students. It's The city itself has become a housing area. You attended IU in the early 60s. Yes. You ascended to the editorship of both the Arbutus Yearbook and the Indiana Daily Student. Was there a moment in which you were bitten by the writing bug? Oh, definitely. It was in second grade. The teacher wrote a sentence on the blackboard, and I went up and put a comma in it. And she said, why did you put a comma in that sentence? And I said, I don't know. It just belonged there. And from that time, she told my mother that she thought I was going to be a writer. It came easily. And uh, in grade school, I sort of tried out everything. I put together little books, I called them. I made a newspaper, every word printed. I tried writing plays, and of course poetry came in there. But I knew from a very early age that I would have to make my own living, which of course most little girls didn't expect to do. They were going to get married and somebody was going to support them. But I looked around in my small town, Ellettsville, and the only way I could see to make money from writing was a newspaper. So at 13, I actually started writing for the journal in Ellettsville. Of all my colleagues, very few have got to work on a weekly newspaper. So that was, that was a good beginning. It was a lot of fun. Also, the journal at that time through WTTS had a 15-minute radio program and I got to be on it. So that was my beginning in radio when I was about 14, 15. What did you do on radio? I gave the community news. This was Ellettsville and what's happening in Ellettsville. So you might do a town council meeting. Um, I didn't cover all those things, but that's what we read. And we would have a, a script, and it was great fun. <laughs> 
you moved on to IU in the early 60s. Uh, writing came e- easily to you. Uh, how easily did leadership in a newsroom as a young woman come to you? Well, first you've got to get me through freshman year. <laughs> I was living at home. I didn't have money to be on campus. So that in some ways isolated me. Uh, and I didn't live in Bloomington. I, I got in my car and drove back to Ellettsville. So it, it was very hard to feel like I was belonging. And as you go through registration, of course, the activities groups were right at the end trying to sign you up for everything. And I thought, well, I had been editor of my Ellettsville High School yearbook, so why didn't I work on the yearbook? So I signed up for the Arbutus, and I quickly found a home. Those crazy people worked late into the night, past hours and everything. And I soon found myself as assistant to the editor, which meant I did kind of anything that people needed. And we basically would work all evening until about 2 a.m. in in the Arbutus office, which was in Ernie Pyle Hall. And then I would drive home and did a full class schedule during the day. So I made friends there and couldn't wait till I could get into the Daily Student newsroom. Uh, and, and in the Arbuta, simply by working and being there, you work your way up. I think sophomore year I was narrative editor, junior year I was managing editor, and then senior year was editor. I know um, as, as far as the daily student went, that came spring semester of my junior year, and I actually applied to be managing editor. But John Stemple, who was chairman of the department, and the small group of faculty who who selected the top people at that time said that I had to be yearbook editor in my senior year. So that was the only time I could be editor of the Daily Student. And at that point, I hadn't even thought of it. So I think to answer the second part of your question, it... um, It came, the leadership part almost came because you earned it or stepped up in different positions. I had probably written more column inches as a reporter in The Daily Student than anyone else. And and then I had been a night editor. So I had some of the editorial experience, but those were hands-on positions and the editor was a bit different. You were editor in 1963, 64? Would have been 63, yeah. Or no, 64, spring semester. So this was a time, this was a time when uh, um, there was not yet an active hippie movement on campus. That's true. We were just ahead of that. Civil rights was just coming to the fore in the national dialogue. Yes. What kinds of stories do you recall dominating the IDS headlines that year? We did a great deal of student government. I think perhaps now you cover more mainstream news than we did. We would do certain things, and uh, I 
was not editor at the time, but I, I was certainly on the paper, John F. Kennedy was slain. And so we were all gathered around the AP machine and listening to everything the whole time. And that, of course, became a big thing. So, yes, we did do some mainstream news, but I know as a, a government reporter for the Daily Student, I covered the uh, student council meetings and things of that kind. So maybe more campus events. But we also did some big stuff, too. After IU, you had uh, wanted to go to law school, but couldn't finance it. And you wound wound up uh, acquiring a fellowship in order to get a master's in journalism at Syracuse University. Correct. Uh, There was... Money was always the big fight, and another reason I didn't go to law school at that time, I actually met some women lawyers through Mortarboard. They hosted a group of us to do that, and they said that it was not a very friendly profession for women at the time, that they were kind of put in the background to do research, and they rarely got to do going into court and things that I thought I wanted to do. So I thought, well, I was already working in journalism, and I loved it. Uh, I was at the Herald Telephone in that day, now the Herald Times, and working part-time all the way through college. And it, it was something I was familiar with. So Instead of law school, I decided on the master's, even though a couple of faculty members said suggested I was just trying to avoid the real world of going to work. But I did it because I thought a girl needed an extra foot in the door. After Syracuse, you renewed your Indiana ties in a way, went to work for Senator Birch Bayh. How did you come upon that opportunity? Well, I had Potomac fever, as they say. I wanted very much to be in Washington, D.C., because I thought that's where everything happened. I had applied for a summer internship at with Birch by the year before between IU and Syracuse, and actually got it and then learned that it was unpaid, and so I couldn't afford to do it. So I worked the summer, second summer at the Journal Herald in Dayton, Ohio, and then went on to Syracuse. But I was finishing up first semester finals, and he called and asked if I would come to work for him. And what generated that, he was reading the IU Alumni Magazine, and I had an article in it, and he liked the writing. So he called and said, I need help with speech writing. Would you come down here and talk to me about it? So I flew, at my own expense, I think, from Syracuse to Washington, D.C., spent a day with him, had lunch in the Senate dining room. And I said, I love the job. So I started for Birch Bay in September. I spent about 14 months there. And then knew I had to get back to a newsroom. 
but I always called it my post-postgraduate course. Hmm. And the newsroom where you ended up next was in Indianapolis. Yes, but it was the women's department. And what did that mean at the time? Well, I had to make it interesting to myself. So I, I created a beat, Women in Politics. And I did features and covered any of the bills that the few, very few women legislators had. And it wound up causing some male legislators to complain that the ladies were getting more space in the paper than they were. But it was fun. And I, I went all around the state doing uh, a profile of each congressman's and each senator's wife. How many female colleagues at the Indianapolis News did you have outside of the women's department? One. So I had offers from different newspapers, and I wound up going uh, to the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner. And you landed in America's second largest city. Los Angeles. Yes, but also the second paper by far. I was there four years, and I got to cover, help cover the Sirhan Sirhan trial and the Charles Manson trial. So I did a lot. It was, it was great, and I did covered elections. In the early seventies, you moved to the big paper in town, the L.A. Times, and became the civil courts reporter. The stories weren't as sexy. They weren't as sensational, but you have said in interviews that you really loved that work. I did. Why was that so? Well, I said at one time I wanted to be a lawyer, and then I wound up covering lawyers, so it it was wonderful. How much of a boys' club, if you will, was the L.A. Times environment? Uh, well, so much so there was no women's restroom on the newsroom floor. Wow. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm John Bailey. Our guest today is Bloomington native, IU distinguished alum in journalism, Myrna Oliver. After quite some time at the L.A. Times reporting on civil courts, you made the transition to obituary writer. How does one get that job? <laughs> By accident. One day... There was only one obituary editor-writer at the time, which seems silly. And we're talking about news obituaries that would go on front page or a certain place, not the kind that are paid for and, and written by, uh, by people, families today. And he was just overwhelmed. There were just too many people dying. I think we wound up with two or three on page one. And... Then suddenly, the rather youthful Jim Henson had died. And I was sitting in a three-part pod, we called them, three-part desk in the newsroom. So I heard him, the uh, obituary editor, lamenting all over the place. At the time, I was a legal affairs writer. And so I volunteered. And so that went on page one, and everybody liked it. And after that, if he had just too much to do, he started asking 
asking me to do it. And at that time, we were doing them mostly by researching older clips and so forth, not so much by interviewing people at the time. So I did that. And then um, he finally just decided he needed extra help. And they had liked what I did. So I was, I don't think I applied for it necessarily, but that was what I was assigned to do. And oh my goodness, people think you're at the bottom of the barrel when you do that. But again, I loved it. It's it's really a showcase for writing, and it's a way of telling history through the life of a person. So I did that for 15 years, and I saw nothing to hate about it. I, I just really... It was an important thing to do, and it was still a news story because we didn't write any unless the person had been a newsmaker. I'd so. like to go back to the the Jim Henson moment. Mm-hmm. The the lone news obituary writer is overwhelmed. I believe mm-hmm. Sammy Davis Jr. had just died as well. Yes, there were yes. two or three celebrities clustered around that time. Jim Henson dies suddenly. What do you have to work with in that moment? And how long do you have to turn it? That was, I think it happened in the morning. But the time I knew I was doing it, I it was about 11 and deadline is at 5. So it was longer than usual. I have had things dumped on me at 5 o'clock on a Friday, Sarah Vaughn, for instance. But you first call the library, meaning the morgue, and ask for anything that we've got. And then you check all the wires, anything that's coming in. Uh, A difficulty with him, he was certainly not expected to die. They thought he had a cold. And so getting a reason why he should die was very difficult. And that had to come. He had died back east. So you call and you uh, try to find some official person but you also do watch wires, too, and then try to verify what they have eventually. How much of your job at the obituary desk was uh, updating notable people's biographies <laughs> uh, so that an obituary can be turned quickly? And how much um, – well, I'll ask that first. Well, yes, it is true. They have advanced obituaries, as we call them. And I think the answer to your question is never often enough. And how many do you have? Not enough. We just never had the staff to keep a whole great bank. They just don't teach that anymore. This is the IU training, that you do what needs to be done. You do it on deadline. You do it well. But, yes, I wrote some advances, and, yes, I I did them. And to be a news obituary, we always said you had to be a a newsmaker. You had to have been in headlines before, either in entertainment, either in achievement. We have, of course, a lot of Hollywood and the entertainment people, but sports famous people, and I'm, I'm always amazed at, Uh, very important obits that are written on people who were star quarterbacks at 
UCLA or USC when they were in college. But that's still important in that area. And I always liked the ones who who had done something in a second career maybe after their, their main thing. But it it has to have you wouldn't do just oh and oh my goodness, I've had so many families so upset with me because I would not put their loved one in the paper. Uh, but you have to have made news. I was going to ask about feedback. How often did you get feedback, either positive or negative, from people close to someone about whom you'd written a news obituary? I think there must be a great deal more with all the social media now. We were getting into email now at the end of the uh, article in the Los Angeles Times. A lot of newspapers do it. They run your personal email, so you get quite a lot. Certainly not every obituary, but but more than you would think. And sometimes the reactions are horrible, uh, like, I'm going to sue you or whatever. But I also got a lot of nice comments. Can I ask you to read a bit of an obituary you wrote in 2002 for Charles H. Ford? I hadn't even remembered this until you gave it to me. Charles Henry Ford, founding editor of the influential literary magazines Blues and View, and a surrealist poet who also dabbled in novels, photography, and collages, has died. He was 94. Ford, who wrote 16 books of poetry and co-authored what is considered the first gay novel, The Young and Evil, died September 27th in Manhattan of causes associated with aging. He had at various times maintained homes in Paris, Crete, and Kathmandu. The eclectic Ford's peripatetic life and his own reminiscences of hobnobbing with Gertrude Stein, Paul Bowles, and Andy Warhol, among others, was chronicled in the two-hour documentary film Sleep in a Nest of Flames, released last year. Nigel Stark wrote a book called Life After Death, The Art of the Obituary. He uh, cited your finesse of expression in referring to uh, Ford's eclectic, peripatetic life. (laughs) He went on to say there is contrapuntal vigor in the testimony (laughs) that Ford, a homosexual, met lesbian writer Juna Barnes, 19 years his senior, and moved into her apartment in Paris. (laughs) It's colorful. How much literary license do you have in summarizing a life that you may not have in day-turn storytelling? Well, I don't lie. (laughs) I try not to do that. But I think a good deal, and I think that's why the few people who appreciate, I mean, doing the uh, writing of obituaries— why we do love it, because, as I said, you get to explain a bit of history through the life, and you also get to write. I remember at a very low moment, I thought, there are two reasons you are here, no matter whether you're happy one day or not. And in shorthand symbols, I actually typed, or taped them on my computer screen. 
and one was a symbol for dollars, and one was a symbol for right. I get to write, and I get paid for it, which to me was always the very best thing about journalism. What kind of responsibility did defining a life in maybe several hundred words carry for you? What kind of burden is that? Well, it's a very important responsibility. I I don't think I thought of it as a burden. There were some people, probably the worst, the most difficult, was a very renowned, long-serving chairman of the board of Times Mirror Co., which, of course, owned and had, had started and launched from the, the Los Angeles Times. But even that worked very well. But that was a very big responsibility. And, of course, you want to get it right. You hope you get it right. And then occasionally um, you'll hear the wonderful thing, I read them all, and yours was the best, much better than the New York Times. (laughs) But, yes, you do have more literary license to, to write. I feel very fortunate in... The path that I took to go from a weekly in Ellisville, living on a rural route, to the Los Angeles Times and covering the things I got to cover, maybe would have liked to have gone farther, but what does that mean? I, I was there. <laughs> I've been speaking today with Myrna Oliver. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. This is a real honor for me. This is John Bailey for WFIU's Profiles. That was WFIU's John Bailey speaking with newspaper journalist Myrna Oliver. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.